0: Be sure to follow Send Me To Sleep on your preferred podcast player, so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me To Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast, designed to help you fall asleep through relaxing stories and hypnotic meditation. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm delighted that you've joined me tonight. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. If you find this podcast effective, please consider subscribing, so you can stay up to date with new weekly episodes and fall asleep consistently each night. Additionally, if you would like to receive exclusive content, or make a request for the next episode, please visit sendmetosleep.com podcast and sign up for our free newsletter. That's sendmetosleep.com podcast. For tonight's sleep story, I'll be reading Chapter 4, The Flood, Chapter 5, The Story of Io, and Chapter 6, The Wonderful Weaver, from James Baldwin's Old Greek Stories. Before we get into the story, can I ask, have you ever flipped your pillow to the cold side You may wonder why I ask this question. Tonight's episode is sponsored by MUNA, the world's first active cooling pillow pad. Numerous scientific studies have shown that temperature is the key to great sleep, and that your head plays a critical role in your temperature regulation. MUNA's pillow pads provide the best temperature for each night phase, allowing users to fall asleep quickly, sleep deeply, and wake gently. They are particularly successful for individuals who suffer with night sweats, hot flashes, and migraines. Unlike other bed cooling systems, Moona focuses on precision calling to the head area, rather than the whole body, which equals warm body, cool head, the optimum factors for sleep. There are no electronics under the head or data transmission during the night, and you can trial Moona for 30 nights, risk-free. Go to getmoona.com and use the code SENDMETOSLEEP at checkout to receive your exclusive discount. All links and information are in the show notes. Any purchases using our code helps support the podcast and allows us to continue releasing free content. So thank you to Moona and all of our listeners. Now... That's enough endorsement for this episode, so let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 4 The Flood In those very early times, there was a man named Deucalion, and he was the son of Prometheus. He was only a common man, and not a titan like his great father, and yet he was known far and wide for his good deeds and the uprightness of his life. His wife's name was Pyrrha, and she was one of the fairest of the daughters of men. After Jupiter had bound Prometheus on Mount Caucasus and had sent diseases and cares into the world, men became very, very wicked. They no longer built houses and tended their flocks and lived together in peace but every man was at war with his neighbor, and there was no law nor safety in all the land. Things were in much worse case now than they had been before Prometheus had come among men, and that was just what Jupiter wanted. But as the world became wickeder and wickeder every day, he began to grow weary of seeing so much bloodshed and of hearing the cries of the oppressed and poor. These men, he said to his mighty company, are nothing but a source of trouble. When they were good and happy, we felt afraid lest they should come greater than ourselves and now they are so terribly wicked that we are in worse danger than before. There is only one thing to be done with them, and that is to destroy them, everyone. So he sent a great rainstorm upon the earth, and it rained day and night for a long time and the sea was filled to the brim, and the water ran over the land, and covered first the plains, and then the forests, and then the hills. But men kept on fighting and robbing, even while the rain was pouring down, and the sea was coming up over the land. No one but Eucalion, the son of Prometheus, was ready for such a storm. He had never joined in any of the wrongdoings of those around him, and had often told them that unless they had left off their evil ways, there would be a day of reckoning in the end. Once every year he had gone to the land of Caucasus to talk with his father, who was hanging chained to the mountain peak. The day is coming, said Prometheus, when Jupiter will send a flood to destroy mankind from the earth. Be sure that you are ready for it, my son. And so when the rain began to fall, Deucalion drew from its shelter a boat which he had built for just such a time. He called Fair Pyrrha, his wife, and the two sat in the boat and were floated safely on the rising waters. Day and night, day and night, I cannot tell how long. The boat drifted hither and thither. The tops of the trees were hidden by the flood, and then the hills, and then the mountains. And Deucalion and Pyrrha could see nothing anywhere but water, 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 and they knew that all people in the land had been drowned. After a while, the rain stopped falling, and the clouds cleared away, and the blue sky and the golden sun came out overhead. Then the water began to sink very fast to run off the land towards the sea, and early the very next day... The boat was drifted high upon a mountain called Parnassus, and Deucalion and Pyrrha stepped out upon the dry land. After that, it was only a short time until the whole country was laid bare, and the trees shook their leafy branches in the wind and the fields were carpeted with grass and flowers more beautiful than in the days before the flood. But Deucalion and Pyrrha were very sad, for they knew that they were the only persons who were left alive in all the land. At last, they started to walk down the mountainside towards the plain, wondering what would become of them now, all alone as they were in the wide world. While they were talking and trying to think what they should do, they heard a voice behind them. They turned and saw a noble young prince, standing on one of the rocks above them. He was very tall, with blue eyes and yellow hair. There were wings on his shoes and on his cap, and in his hand he bore a staff with golden serpents twined around it. They knew at once that he was Mercury, the swift messenger of the Mighty Ones, and they waited to hear what he would say. Is there anything that you wish? he asked. Tell me, and you shall have whatever you desire. We should like, above all things, said Deucalion, to see this land full of people once more for without neighbors and friends, the world is a very lonely place indeed. Go on down the mountain, said Mercury, and as you go, cast the bones of your mother over your shoulders behind you, and with these words he leaped into the air and was seen no more. "'What did he mean?' said Pyrrha. "'Surely I do not know,' said Deucalion. "'But let us think a moment. "'Who is our mother, if it is not the earth, "'from whom all living things have sprung? "'And yet, what could he mean by the bones of our mother?' Perhaps he meant the stones of the earth, said Pyrrha. Let us go on down the mountain, and as we go, let us pick up the stones in our path and throw them over our shoulders behind us. It is rather a silly thing to do, said Deucalion, and yet there can be no harm in it and we shall see what will happen. And so they walked on, down the steep slope of Mount Parnassus, and as they walked they picked up the loose stones in their way and cast them over their shoulders. And strange to say, the stone which Deucalion threw sprang up as full-grown men, strong and strong, and handsome and brave, and the stones which Pyrrha threw sprang up as full-grown women, lovely and fair. When at last they reached the plain, they found themselves at the head of the noble company of human beings, all eager to serve them. So Deucalion became their king. And he set them in homes, and taught them how to till the ground, and how to do many useful things. And the land was filled with people who were happier, and far better, than those who had dwelt there before the flood. And they named the country Hellas, after Helen, the son of Deucalion and Pyrrha. And the people are to this day called Hellenes, But we call the country Greece. Chapter 5 The Story of Io In the town of Argos there lived a maiden named Io. She was so fair and good that all who knew her loved her and said that there was no one like her in the whole world. When Jupiter, in his home in the clouds, heard of her, he came down to Argos to see her. She pleased him so much and was so kind and wise That he came back the next day, and the next, and the next. And by and by he stayed in Argos all the time, so that he might be near her. She did not know who he was, but thought that he was a prince from some far-off land, for he came in the guise of a young man and did not look like the great king of earth and sky that he was. But Juno, the queen who lived with Jupiter and shared his throne in the midst of the clouds, did not love Io at all. When she heard why Jupiter stayed from home so long, she made up her mind to do the fair girl all the harm that she could and one day she went down to argos to try what could be done jupiter saw her while she was yet a great way off and he knew why she had come so to save io from her he changed the maiden to a white cow he thought that when Juno had gone back home, it would not be hard to give Io her own form again. But when the queen saw the cow, she knew that it was Io. Oh, what a fine cow you have there, she said. Give her to me, good Jupiter. Give her to me. Jupiter did not like to do this, but she coaxed so hard that at last he gave up and let her have the cow for her own. He thought that it would not be long till he could get her away from the queen and change her to a girl once more, but Juno was too wise to trust him. She took the cow by her horns and led her out of town. Now, my sweet maid, she said, I will see that you stay in this shape as long as you live. Then she gave the cow in charge of a strange watchman named Argus, who had not two eyes only, as you and I have, but ten times ten. And Argus led the cow to a grove and tied her by a long rope to a tree, where she had to stand and eat grass and cry, Moo! Moo! from morn till night. And when the sun had set and it was dark, She lay down on the cold ground and wept, and cried, Moo, moo, till she fell asleep. But no kind friend heard her, and no one came to help her, for none but Jupiter and Juno knew that the white cow who stood in the grove was Io, whom all the world loved. Day in and day out, Argus, who was all eyes, sat on a hill close by and kept watch, and you could not say that he went to sleep at all, for while half of his eyes were shut, the other half were wide awake and thus they slept and watched by turns. Jupiter was grieved when he saw to what a hard life Io had been doomed, and he tried to think of some plan to set her free. One day he called Sly Mercury, who had wings on his shoes, and bade him Go and lead the cow away from the grove where she was kept. Mercury went down and stood near the foot of the hill where Argus sat, and began to play sweet tunes on his flute. This was just what the strange watchman liked to hear, and so he called to Mercury and asked him to come up and sit by his side and play still other tunes. Mercury did as he wished and played such strains of sweet music as no one in all the world has heard from that day to this. And as he played, queer old Argus, lay down upon the grass and listened, and thought he had not as so great a treat in all his life, but by and by those sweet sounds wrapped him in so strange a spell that all his eyes closed at once, and he fell into a deep sleep. This was just what Mercury wished, it was not a brave thing to do, and yet he drew a long, sharp knife from his belt and cut off the head of poor Argus while he slept, then he ran down the hill to loose the cow and lead her to town. But Juno had seen him kill her watchman, and she met him on the road. She cried out to him and told him to let the cow go, and her face was so full of wrath that, as soon as he saw her, he turned and fled, and left poor Io to her fate. Juno was so much grieved when she saw Argus stretched dead in the grass on the hilltop, that she took his hundred eyes and set them in the tail of a peacock, and there you may still see them to this day. Then she found a great gadfly, as big as a bat, and sent it to buzz in the white cow's ear and to bite her and sting her so that she could have no rest all day long. Poor Io ran from place to place to get out of its way, but it buzzed and buzzed and stung and stung till she was wild with fright and pain and wished that she were dead. Day after day she ran, now through the thick woods, now in the long grass that grew on the treeless plains, and now by the shore of the sea. By and by she came to a narrow neck of the sea, and Since the land on the other side looked as though she might find rest there, she leapt into the waves and swam across, and that place had been called Bosphorus, a word which means the Sea of the Cows, from that time till now, and you will find it so marked on the maps in which you use at school. Then she went on through a strange land on the other side, but let her do what she would. She could not get rid of the gadfly. After a time, she came to a place where there were high mountains with snow-capped peaks which seemed to touch the sky. There she stopped to rest a while, and she looked up at the calm, cold cliffs above her, and wished that she might die where all was so grand and still. But as she looked, she saw a giant form stretched upon the rocks midway between earth and sky, and she knew at once it was Prometheus, the young titan. Whom Jupiter had chained there because he had given fire to men. My sufferings are not so great as his, she thought, and her eyes were filled with tears. Then Prometheus looked down and spoke to her, and his voice was very mild and kind. I know who you are, he said and then he told her not to lose hope, but to go south and then west, and she would by and by find a place in which to rest. She would have thanked him if she could, but when she tried to speak she could only say, Moo, Moo. Then Prometheus went on, and told her the time would come when she would be given her own form again, and that she should live to be the mother of a race of heroes. As for me, said he, I bide the time in patience, for I know that one of those heroes will break my chains and set me free. Farewell. Then Aya, with a brave heart, left the great Titan and journeyed, as he had told her, first south, then west. The gadfly was worse now than before, but she did not fear it half so much, for her heart was full of hope. For a whole year she wandered and at last she came to the land of Egypt in Africa. She felt so tired now that she could go no farther, and so she lay down near the bank of the great river Nile to rest. At this time Jupiter might have helped her had he not been so much afraid of Juno but now it so chanced that when the poor cow lay down by the bank of the Nile, Queen Juno, in her high house in the clouds, also lay down to take a nap. As soon as she was sound asleep, Jupiter, like a flash of light, sped over the sea to Egypt, He killed the cruel gadfly and threw it into the river. Then he stroked the cow's head with his hand, and the cow was seen no more. But in her place stood the young girl Ayo, pale and frail, but fair and good as she had been in her old home in the town of Argos. Jupiter said not a word, nor even showed himself to the tired, trembling maiden. He hurried back with all speed to his high home in the clouds, for he feared that Juno might waken and find out what he had done. The people of Egypt were kind to Io, and gave her a home in the sunny land, and by and by the king of Egypt asked her to be his wife, and made her his queen, and she lived a long and happy life in his marble palace on the bank of the Nile. Ages afterward The great-grandson of the great-grandson of Io's great-grandson broke the chains of Prometheus and set that mighty friend of mankind free. The name of the hero was Hercules. Chapter 6 The Wonderful Weaver There was a young girl in Greece whose name was Arachne. Her face was pale but fair, and her eyes were big and blue, and her hair was long and like gold. All that she cared to do from morn till noon was to sit in the sun and spin, and all that she cared to do from noon till night was sit in the shade and weave. And oh, how fine and fair were the things which she wove in her loom. Flax, wool, silk, she worked with them all, and when they came from her hands, The cloth which she had made of them was so thin and soft and bright that men came from all parts of the world to see it. And they said that cloth so rare could not be made of flax or wool or silk, but that the warp was of rays of sunlight and the woof was of threads of gold. Then as, day by day, the girl sat in the sun and span, or sat in the shade and wove, she said, in all the world there is no yarn so fine as mine, and in all the world there is no cloth so soft and smooth, nor silk so bright and rare. Who taught you to spin and weave so well? someone asked. No one taught me, she said. I learned how to do it as I sat in the sun and the shade, but no one showed me. But it may be that Athena, the queen of the air, taught you, and you did not know it. Athena, the queen of the air? Bah, said Arachne, how could she teach me? Can she spin such skeins of yarn as these? Can she weave goods like mine? I should like to see her try. I can teach her a thing or two. She looked up and saw in the doorway a tall woman wrapped in a long cloak. Her face was fair to see, but stern, oh so stern, and her grey eyes were so sharp and bright that Arachne could not meet her gaze. Arachne, said the woman, I am Athena the queen of the air, and I have heard your boast, do you still mean to say that I have not taught you how to spin and weave? No one has taught me, said Arachne, and I thank no one for what I know, and she stood up, straight and proud, by the side of her loom and do you still think that you can spin and weave as well as I? said Athena. Arachne's cheeks grew pale, but she said, yes, I can weave as well as you. Then let me tell you what we will do, said Athena. Three days from now we will both weave, you on your loom, And I on mine. We will ask all the world to come and see us, and great Jupiter, who sits in the clouds, shall be the judge. And if your work is best, then I will weave no more so long as the world shall last. But if my work is best, Then you shall never use loom or spindle or distaff again. Do you agree to this? I agree, said Arachne. It is well, said Athena, and she was gone. When the time came for the contest in weaving, all the world was there to see it and great Jupiter sat among the clouds and looked on. Arachne had set up her loom in the shade of a mulberry tree, where butterflies were flitting and grasshoppers chirping all through the livelong day, but Athena had set up her loom in the sky where the breezes were blowing and the summer sun was shining, for she was the queen of the air. Then Arachne took her skeins of finest silk and began to weave, and she wove a web of marvellous beauty, so thin and light that it would float in the air, and yet so strong it could hold the lion in its meshes, and the thread of warp and woof were of many colours, so beautifully arranged and mingled, one with another, that all who saw were filled with delight. No wonder that the maiden boasted of her skill, said the people. And Jupiter himself nodded. Then Athena began to weave, and she took of the sunbeams that gilded the mountain top, and of the snowy fleece of the summer clouds, and of the blue ether of the summer sky, and of the bright green of the summer fields and of the royal purple of the autumn woods, and what do you suppose she wove? The web which she wove in the sky was full of enchanting pictures of flowers and gardens, and of castles and towers, and of mountain heights, and of men and beasts and of giants and dwarfs, and of the mighty beings who dwell in the clouds with Jupiter. And those who looked upon it were so filled with wonder and delight that they forgot all about the beautiful web which Arachne had woven. And Arachne herself was ashamed and afraid when she saw it, and she hid her face in her hands and wept. Oh, how can I live, she cried, now that I must never again use loom or spindle or distaff, and she kept on, weeping and weeping and weeping and saying, how can I live? Then. When Athena saw that the poor maiden would never have any joy unless she were allowed to spin and weave, she took pity on her and said, I would free you from your bargain if I could, but that is a thing which no one can do. You must hold to your agreement, never to touch loom or spindle again. And yet, since you will never be happy unless you can spin and weave, I will give you a new form so that you can carry on your work with neither spindle nor loom. Then she touched arachne with the tip of the spear which she sometimes carried and the maiden was changed at once into a nimble spider, which ran into a shady place in the grass, and began merrily to spin and weave a beautiful web. I have heard it said that all the spiders which have been in the world since then are the children of Arachne, but I doubt whether this be true, yet for aught I know, Arachne still lives and spins and weaves, and the very next spider that you see may be she herself.